This is John LaBelle, your host on Visionaries. We're here every, and then I like to think a minute, every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, but we're totally global. I get email from all over the world. You can email me at John LaBelle, J-O-H-N-L-O-B as in boy, E-L-L, at Mac, M-A-C dot com. And our show is about visionaries, people who are highly creative in the arts, sciences, technology, culture, spirituality. And you can catch our back shows, more about them later, online at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, as in Nancy, dot com. And I've been talking for the past couple of shows about movies. I want to pick up on that theme again maybe next week, but I want to talk today about education, and I'm, <laughs> I'm an educator. Uh, I'm a professor of architecture at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York, <laughs> and I've been there a long time. Uh, hate to say how long. Well, I, love, I loved every minute of it, usually, but I think a lot about education, what we're doing in schools. And we're at a moment right now where there's a lot of discussion about education. And there's even speculation that education is the next bubble. So what is a bubble? So we had the dot-com bubble in 2000. We had the housing bubble in 2007 and the associated financial bubble that went with it. And it's an overinvestment in something that has an illusory value. So <laughs> uh, if you're old enough to remember the year 2000 when all the uh, dot-com uh, retailing companies were starting, most famously Amazon, and they were successful, <laughs> dominating the world. But another one, very big at the time, was Pets.com. They had TV ads with a sock puppet. And their business model was uh, they would ship you, <laughs> if you're in New York, they would ship to you from California a 50-pound bag of kitty litter cheaper than you could buy it at the grocery store downstairs. And uh, so <laughs> how'd they do that? Well, guess. They lost money on every bag. And well, what kind of business model is that? Well, they're going to make up for it in volume. <laughs> you know, they were, they were buying eyeballs, which was the jargon of the day. They wanted to develop users, and then they would eventually figure out maybe how to make money. Well, it totally didn't work. So that was um, people were buying stock in those companies and believing that they were going to work, and they weren't. So investing in something uh, at way too high a value for its real value. Is that where we're at? Oh, and, of course, we saw that happening in housing where 
wait a minute, I should buy this house for this ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, but it'll be worth twice as much in six months because some other idiot will buy it from you for twice as because that idiot will sell it to yet another idiot for again twice as much. So the twice as much is suddenly stopped. The phrase in Ireland was, who's going to be the last patty? Patty being an Irishman. So, you know, the one who buys the house and there's nobody to buy it for twice as much. There's nobody to buy it for half as much. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Peter Thiel today. And Peter Thiel asks, what is education? Is it an investment or is it consumption? Oh, it's consumption is something you buy now because it's enjoyable now. It has no future value. So you drink a bottle of beer, uh, you eat a nice dinner. Uh, your life is not going to be better in 10 years because you drank a bottle of beer <clears throat> or ate a $100 dinner. But while you're eating the $100 dinner, you might be having a great time. That's consumption. And investment is obviously, you do something that's not so pleasant now, like saving $100 a week <laughs> instead of buying a $100 dinner every week. And when you do that, uh, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years, when it comes time to retire or buy a house or start a business, there's a lot of money in the bank because you invested. So that's an investment. So which is education? And Peter Thiel said, I think neither. I think it's insurance. And what did he mean by that? That life is, pardon the phrase, a crapshoot. Who knows what's going to happen in your life? Who knows if you're going to make the right connection, the right thing's going to click, your first job is going to pan out, the field you've entered is the one that's going to really work for you. Uh, but if you go to, if you get great grades in high school and you go to a prestigious college and you get really good grades in college and you go, pardon me, you go to law school <laughs> or, or business school, uh, then, you know, you know you'll get a job at a top law firm or at a top consulting company and you'll be set for life. You know, it'll be a grind. It'll be a lot of work, but uh, it's pretty hard to screw up. So that is <clears throat> insurance. You know, instead of saying, let's uh, skip college and start a startup and um, you know, explore some other alternatives that we'll talk about in today's show. Instead of doing that, I'll, you know, put my nose to the grindstone, do well in high school, get to an prestigious college, get good grades in college, go to a prestigious law school or management school, get a job in a top law firm or consulting firm, and I'll be reasonably set for life, you know, uh, better off than if I had uh, taken a crapshoot, that if I had uh, started that uh, startup in the basement with a bunch of friends. So um, that's a theory of education. We'll talk about that as we go. But what Peter Thiel is suggesting is that doesn't work. We all know about law schools that uh, <clears throat> they all tell you, you know, you go to you go to law school 
and you're going to get this job, you starting salary, 250000 a year, you know, and I'm looking at it and say, I don't make half that, you know. And these are people right out of, well, no, <laughs> they're not making that. And schools are being sued for false advertising. And it's only if you go to one of the top five schools you get that. And you go to one of you know, to the next uh, top five schools, uh, maybe you'll do okay. And anything less, uh, <laughs> you're not going to do very well most of the time. So that's a bubble. That investment is, or that, I'm sorry, insurance uh, has been sold under false pretenses. And then beyond that, so we'll talk more about that. And beyond that, we're in a time of, what is the liberal arts? You know, so you, uh, unless you know what you want to do, unless you're one of those fast-track people who's going to law school or business school, well, you go to college and you're a liberal arts major for four years. And, okay, so you study what? English literature, uh, women's studies, philosophy, sociology, and these fields have become really, really weird. Uh, you know, if you, if you say English literature, oh, we're going to read Jane Austen. Well, that isn't what they do anymore. Uh, you know, it's, it's just the, in a lot of cases, the, whatever the professor did their Ph.D. in. And that's what you're studying. And you never get the overview. You never get... And so people are not sure what, what is English literature, what is sociology, what is philosophy, what is women's studies. Why does someone spend 400, uh, spend four years and 100,000 plus dollars studying that? And what does it prepare you for? Well, you'll make a million dollars more over the course of your career if you go to college. Maybe. Um, but those are pretty ginned up statistics. You know, what, what if the person who's going to make that hundred thousand million dollars more over the course of their career, where's the uh, control group? Where is the really smart people that could have gone to a top school and been a brilliant English literature major, uh, but who didn't? And let's see what their income is. Well, we don't compare it to them. We compare it to the people who don't go to college. Well, maybe that's, uh, that group has other problems to begin with, other than that they didn't study a major in, uh, in their professor's Ph.D. topic. So anyway, um, I read these books and newsletters, Chronicle of Higher Education. Everybody in education is supposed to read that. And if you're interested in what I'm talking about, there's a um, online free newsletter called InsideHigherEd.com. And so you can check it out every day. It has about five news stories. And it gives you a one, two-sentence summary of each one so that you can decide if you want to click it open and read it. And then the fun part is you can comment. <laughs> I've been sort of banned from comments. <laughs> Only about a quarter of my comments are approved by the censors, um, you know, and the censors there. So you're not supposed to say, you know, George Bush is an idiot or whomever is currently president. And 
So, you know, you, you, you post your comment and a half an hour later it shows up because the because the sensor has finally gotten to yours and clicked it through. Mine don't get clicked through three quarters of the time. And I'm not saying, I, you know, you're not supposed to attack people personally, the other commenters or uh, et cetera. I don't do any of that. But I express skepticism about some issues in higher education. And I guess they don't like that. <laughs> but I come from a contrarian tradition. And uh, I went. I went to uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania, which is a pretty spiffy school today. But it, you know, wasn't that special when I did a uh, long time ago. And I take off the school. My mother says, "I'm not. You're going to major in architecture. You're not going to major in English. I'm not spending all this money to send you to college so you can work in a gas station." <laughs> And she's disappointed anyway that I'm going to Penn. She wanted me to go to Pratt, which was right nearby. You know, it was uh, we were on Long Island, Pratt's in Brooklyn, and and it would have been a lot cheaper. And uh, that was her second choice. Her first choice, she wanted me to apprentice to a violin maker. <laughs> I mean, you know. What a life you could have left. I mean, I could have led, right? I mean, here's something really imaginative, really different, and they do really well. How many how many competent violin makers are there? So I had this very contrarian imaginative mother. I'm contrarian now, but I wasn't then. I wanted to go to uh I wanted to go to a prestigious college. So my my apologies to my mother and the world for going to a prestigious college. But the so you know what 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 does this mean? What do, what does it mean that we go to college? Why are we doing that? And I occasionally pose the following question. And I think this is such a brilliant question and there no one's ever answered it. Um you know I do it in essays, I do it in postings, I do it in the comments to the education newsletters. And here's the thought. Suppose you, a young person, your child, niece, nephew, comes to you and says, I have four years and $100,000, and they're 18. What should I do? They, you know, they just finished. In other words, should they go to college? And now, there's one other part to my little conceit here, to my imaginary world, and that's as follows. Let's back up. When I got out of school, uh, got out of architecture school, the help wanted columns in the New York Times were divided help wanted male and help wanted female. Guess what? Help wanted male was doctors and lawyers and engineers and architects. Help wanted females was nurses and secretaries. Today that's totally illegal. And we all agree with that. And, you know, the uh, men and women are in all the professions. And the... So, there, you know, we understand that that's totally inappropriate behavior to say, you know, help wanted male or help wanted female. 
So I think it should also be illegal to say, you know, we have a job and required is a college degree. Now, uh, that should be illegal unless you can demonstrate that there's a reason for a college degree. So if you can demonstrate there's a good reason, fine. But just in general, no. Now, what does that mean to the poor prospective employer to kind of have all these applicants of people who are totally unqualified? So now there's another part to this little imagination here, and that is there would be a universal availability of certification. In other words, you could get yourself certified in English literature, um, Microsoft Office, calculus, advanced physics, chemistry, biology. There would be all these ways. Now, how would you do that? Well, there could be exams. You could go to, you know, you could go to, the, you know, like the civil service exam. You could go to a, an exam place that private companies could offer these exams. And, you know, some of them might take bribes to say you're certified when you're not. Well, people would find out about that and say, who certified you? Forget it. We're not, we don't accept that. So it would get worked out. And you, all the skills you would need for jobs, you could acquire. However, you might acquire them in college. You might acquire them in an online course. You might acquire them in a community college. You might acquire them in an evening adult ed course. You might acquire them in life experience. You know, I don't think you have to go to school to be a welder, to be a press break operator. But boy, you know, I, I actually um, do some work in the metal industry, and a good press break operator makes a very good living. Uh, but to do the most advanced work in that field is literally years, if not a decade or more, of acquired skill. And then word gets around the industry. There's no certification, but word gets around the business. Business isn't that big. The industry isn't that big these days. Uh, oh, you work for so-and-so, and you were the top person there. Uh, highly desirable. Same thing with welding. You know, uh, lots of uh, sculpture students can weld. But then to do really elegant uh, uh, seams with no uh, bad spots, you know, that's a, an advanced skill. And you get certified in that, and then you get a job welding in, in my model. So whatever the certification might be. And maybe, you know, how are you going to learn English literature? You don't need a professor. i um, <laughs> tell you a little story. I'm old enough to some of my parents' friends. One of them was um, Dave. And Dave had grown up in New Hampshire his family had a little store. He slept in the back room of the store with the border. That's the kind of poverty he grew up in. He went to a one-room schoolhouse. He was, during the McCarthy era, thrown out of the Security and Exchange Commission, cited against 
him, among other things, were he had the finest Marxist library in private hands. <laughs> so that's Dave. You know, I worked for an architect who didn't go to architecture school, quite prominent and important uh, figure in uh, American modern architecture. Frank Lloyd Wright didn't go to architecture school. He did one semester of engineering and didn't even finish that. So there are lots of ways to do these things. And suppose you, um, you go online and you find an outline of uh, English literature. You look at some of them and you say, this, is, this, is, this one sort of has, you know, the books in this one I relate to. I remember I respect Jane Austen as an important writer, but it, as a college sophomore, it wasn't exactly my thing. <laughs> So what are all these women gossiping about who they're going to marry? Why am I reading this? I was reading André Gide, French literature. But, uh, you know, the moralist really struck a chord for me. And I read uh, Les Caves de Vatican and uh, the, the, other Gide, uh, the other Gide novels and then some of the diaries. So I followed my own path. But anyway, so you find a path and then you find a reading group. And maybe there's a person who's paid or maybe they're a volunteer who helps lead the reading group. And then you do that for a year or so, uh, working your way through the literature, the philosophy, the sociology, whatever it might be. And then you take an exam uh, certification. So, okay, backing up, this young person is in a world that what the <laughs> Pardon my digressions. This is the way I think. Uh, so this young person who asked you, uh, I have $100,000 in four years, what should I do, is living in a world where it doesn't matter whether or not they go to college because no one will ever know because it's illegal to ask unless the employer can prove that a college education is pertinent to the job for which they're advertising. But they might ask for certifications. They might say, must be certified in uh, <laughs> 18th century English literature, welding, and uh, advanced calculus, and uh, <laughs> Pascal, right? Or C++. When I studied computer science, I took Pascal. But today you would... Uh, You'd want to be facile in C++, although you lead, need that less and less because we use scripting today more than we do uh, programming from scratch. But anyway, the employer could say whatever they want, and then you come in with those certifications and then see how you do uh, in you know moving through your career in the real world. Now, if that were the world, what would you advise to this young person with $100,000 and four years. Oh, well, blow the four years sitting on a campus uh, going to beer parties and not only spend the $100,000, but get another $50,000 in debt. That's what I think you ought to do. Is that what you would, would advise? For some people, definitely. I mean, I enjoyed college, um, and it was only three years because I segued right into architecture. Actually, Three years of college, three years of architecture school. They overlapped. But not only that, I was taking architecture courses on day one. So it really made sense. I had this great experience where first time I registered 
you go to registration. <laughs> it's in the gym. <laughs> and there are all these graduate uh, liberal arts students, and they're sitting there and they, at a desk, and it says A to B, you know, uh, C to D. Uh, and you get on the line. You know, I get on the line for the L's. <laughs> and you stand on line for half an hour, and this person says, fine, you're registering for, you know, English, sociology, uh, architectural drawing, and whatever. Uh, that's your advisor. <laughs> Well, the next semester, my advisor, the person with whom I registered, was the assistant dean of the architecture school. And I would hang out in his office, and the other architecture majors would hang out. And, of course, you got to know, architecture uh, majors are the coolest people on the campus. So I, I'm having a ball. Uh, so it wasn't so bad. But anyway, so college can make sense. Uh, for people for whom it does, but to march everybody into college. I mean, where is that? And there are other models. I'll give you one right away. I, uh, the exchange student in my high school, when I was in high school, was from Argentina, and she was um, in, had already done a year of law school. And she's, you know, doing a senior year exchange student in a senior year of high school. Where's that at? Well, they don't go to college in Argentina, uh, same as Germany. I have a niece in, in Germany. And in Germany, the situation is high school is very good. I mean, they, they don't waste your time. Um, and you learn the basics of what you have to learn. And your last two years of high school, you're apprenticing. Well, let's back up. They put you in tracks. Now, we're very critical of this tracking in the United States. Um, it means when you're uh, picking age, you know, like 14, 14, 15 years old, the school decides what you're going to do with your life. And we're not so sure in the United States we want to do that. So that's, that's definitely up for discussion. But anyway, you get tracked into professional, vocational, or academic. And... <clears throat> If you get tracked academic, maybe you're going to be a college uh, professor, you will be prepared to go to college. That's very few people. Uh, but suppose you get tracked, you're going to be a doctor. You get tracked, you're going to be a lawyer. You get tracked, you're going to be an engineer. You, you get tracked, you're going to be an engineer. You're heavy on the math and physics in high school. You get out of high school, and you go to engineering school. And... Three, three, four years in engineering school, you're an engineer. The idea that you got to do four years of college and then two or three years of engineering, what for? Uh, well, don't you want to be a well-rounded, literate uh, human being who's capable of self-growth and competing to a culture? Yeah, that's what high school's for in Germany. They take it seriously. You really have to work in high school so that you're, you know, you're an educated person. And then you go straight into med school or law school or – now, what if you're not uh, academic, engineer, lawyer, doctor? You are spending half the day for your last two, three years of high school, <clears throat> half a day in high school, half a day apprenticing at Mercedes-Benz, at BMW, at a hairdresser. And when you finish high school, 
you're ready to go. You go right to the hairdresser and get a well-paying job. You go right to Mercedes-Benz and get a well-paying job in automobile assembly. Uh, you're prepared for that. So our high school system in the United States is either you go to college or you're a failure. Those are the two tracks. So, uh, you know, you go to a, a really rigorous college and you're on track for whatever. You go to a, um, you know, a lousy college and you're on track for whatever. Or you don't go to college at all and you're on track for <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to pick on anybody, but what do you do? What have they prepared you for? So there's an alternative system for you then say to that person, that German person, well, you've got four years and $100,000. Well, I think I'll put the $100,000 in treasuries. <laughs> you know, I have a million dollars in, in 30 years when I retire or 20 years, or whatever it is. You know, why don't I want to blow it? And there are plenty of bars where you can drink beer. You know, after your, after your shift at the Mercedes-Benz factory, you don't have to go to college for, for drinking beer. So anyway, so that's what I thought I'd talk about today. And so some thoughts about that. And so let's think what we want to say about... Um, about this uh, notion of what are we going to do, you know, how, 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 what are we going to do if we're this, um, if we're this um, uh, young person with four years and $100,000. So let's take a break and uh, just to think about this for a minute and we'll see some, what else is on uh, PRN. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay tuned to PRN.FM for more empowering ideas from progressive voices. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. Hi, everybody. I am Karen Hartglass, the host of It's All About Food. Join me every Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Or catch all of my shows in the archives. You can find my archive programs at the Progressive Radio Network website. Or you can call my personal archive phone number to hear the most recent five episodes of It's All About Food. Here's the number. 1-701-719-0885. Here it is again. one 701 719 0885. Learn about how we can solve many of the world's problems today and do it deliciously here on It's All About Food. Everyone, I'm Beatty Cohn Rose, host of Ask Beatty. I'm a psychotherapist, I'm a sex therapist, and on my show, we talk about love, relationships, and sex. You can also call me and ask me any questions about any problems or issues that you may be struggling with. So join me live every Monday afternoon from 3 to 4 Eastern Standard Time, or you can listen to all of my Ask Beatty shows in the PRN archives by dialing one seven zero one. 
719-799-9985. So let's talk soon. Welcome back. John LaBelle, Visionaries, talking today about education. And I've sort of posed us a little, a little, what, thought experiment that suppose a young person, 17, 18, just finished high school, comes to you and says, I have $100,000 in four years. What should I do? <laughs> and uh, Peter Thiel tells us that, well, most such people go to college as insurance just to cover their rear end uh, so that, you know, they should maybe do reasonably well in life. But what if we imagine further in our little thought experiment that prospective employers in the future would not be permitted to ask if you have a college degree? Instead, you could get certified in all kinds of areas, whether it's welding or theoretical physics or, or literature, whatever. And the prospective employer could ask, uh, we want you to be certified in A, B, and C. And you already certified in A and B. You get certified in C and apply for the job. And if that were the world you were living in, would you recommend that this person spend the $100,000 and the four years on a college campus uh, partying. <laughs> uh, I'm a college professor, so my students don't party. We're architecture school. One night a week, they don't sleep. <laughs> Literally. They pull all-nighters. And all-nighters are really all-nighters. You know, they come in and, whoa. And so we work hard, but a lot of colleges, they don't. And is that what you would recommend? For some people, yes, no question. But for everybody, for, you know, the all the people who, in fact, go to college in our world. So uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I run into a, an editorial essay, op-ed, right? This is the op in the New York Times. How to Raise a Creative Child, Step 1. Back Off by Adam Grant. And it begins, I love this quote. I've quoted it quite a bit. They learn to read at age two, play Bach at four, breeze through calculus at six, and speak foreign languages fluently by eight. Their classmates shudder with envy. Their parents rejoice at winning the lottery. But to paraphrase T.S. Eliot, their careers tend to end, not with a bang but a whimper. It goes on. Consider the nation's most prestigious award for scientifically gifted high school students, the Westinghouse Science Talent Search, called the Super Bowl of Science by uh, one American president. I think that might be called the Intel uh, uh, science thing these days. But anyway, we've known it over the years as the Westinghouse. From its, from its inception in 1942 until 1994, the search recognized more than 2,000 precocious teenagers as finalists, but just 1% ended up making the National Academy of Sciences, and just eight have won Nobel Prizes. For every Lisa Randell who revolutionizes theoretical physics, there are many dozens who fall far short of their potential. 
Child prodigies rarely become adult geniuses who change the world. We assume that they must lack the social and emotional, hang on, skills to function in society. But when you look at the evidence, though, this explanation doesn't suffice. Less than a quarter of gifted children suffer from social and emotional problems. Vast majority are well-adjusted as winning at a cocktail party as at a spelling bee. What holds them back is that they don't learn to be original. So I'll stop reading in a sec, but, you know, they strive to earn the approval of their parents and the admiration of their teachers. So think about it. Um, if you're going to be make original contributions, now not everybody has to be original. You could be one of those people who, you know, toes the line, does what everybody else does, does the thing, masters the material, does it well, and takes your discipline to the next decimal point. You know, <laughs> that's sort of an argument about physics where, okay, we know that this is true out to five decimal points, and you spend your career getting it to six decimal points. <laughs> you know, let's say uh, uh, Mercury's orbit around the sun. Uh, Einstein comes along and says, the whole thing is wrong. It, it's not, the, Mercury is not moving in a gravitational field. The, to, to refine our measurement of its motions in that gravitational field to one additional decimal point totally misses the point, speaking of points. It's a total misconception. What's going on is the mass of the sun is distorting the space-time around it, and Mercury is trapped in that distortion. Totally different explanation. Nobody was you know, told to think about that in physics class in Einstein's day. They're hardly even told about it today. You know, in physics, we, we even today, we tend to get to uh, quantum theory in the last week and just breeze over it, except for those that are going to specialize in it and then go on to additional courses. I remember there's something called Bell's Theorem, and... In the early 70s, it, well, it hit the scene around 1964. John Bell presented this idea, uh, a, a, an approach to the idea of entanglement, which is a very weird phenomena in quantum theory. Two particles become entangled. You disturb one, and the other one, even if it's on the other side of the solar system, is infinitely affected. How does it do that? And uh, Einstein called it spooky action at a distance, and he didn't like it. But um, so Bell did the work that said, yeah, it really happens. And um, he established the framework in which that work was done. Well, I went to the physics professor, Pratt, and I said, can you try to explain Bell's theorem to me? He says, uh, I'll have to read up on that. <laughs> they didn't like it. They didn't know about it. They didn't want to know about it. And uh, uh, there's a famous expression in quantum theory called 
shut up and calculate. In other words, what's going on? What does this weirdness mean? And uh, quantum theory, physicists in quantum theory don't want to know, don't want to talk about it, don't want you to talk about it. And uh, to any student who brings it up, the response is shut up and calculate. Don't talk about that stuff. And in fact, there's a book that, my apologies to the to the writers, I should have read it sooner, but I just read it recently, and it is available on audio <laughs> for those of us like me who have trouble reading. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, I get in bed and I can and I can read a book or I can watch watch a rerun of Big Bang Theory. <laughs> which which one happens? <laughs> Sorry about that, books. But anyway, <clears throat> if it's on audio, I can listen while I'm walking around in the car, etc. And there's this book called. How the Hippies Saved Physics. And it was about a group of marginalized physicists. They weren't, you know, top um, in top-tier faculty positions at the top universities. But they were interested in what is going on? What's this weirdness? And one of the, uh, one of the things going on is that I just said um, in Bell's theorem, you're... Uh, observation of measurement of particle A instantly affects particle B, even if it's on the other side of the universe. And what that's telling us is the universe is wired together totally differently than we think. <laughs> you know, Now, how is it? Uh, well, that's up for discussion. But it ain't what we think. So what does that mean? Uh, well, you're not supposed to ask. But it means our observation, our conscious observation, our consciousness affects things in the physical world, even on the other side of the universe. What does that mean? What's the implications of that? So these people start to think about that. They had conferences at Esalen. Uh, and there's a whole community of physicists. Uh, I love the name Saul Paul Sarag was one of them. But a whole bunch of them, I'll talk about this maybe someday and bring in their names, but they started thinking about this, and we now uh, are allowed to allow this into establishment physics, establishment physics, and these guys were responsible for that. So this is thinking, pardon the phrase, outside the box. Talked earlier about a kid who's going to do well in high school, get into a prestigious college, do well enough to get into one of the top five law schools or business schools. You don't do that by telling your professors they're full of it. <laughs> you don't do that by saying, I'm not going to study that. That's ridiculous. That, that establishment stuff doesn't make any sense. Uh, if you think that way, you're not going to... Uh, be one of these kids who, um, you know, read by age two, play Bach by age four, uh, speak f f fluent languages, breathe through calculus. Um, you're going to say, well, what did Einstein say? He said, what would a clock look like to an observer sitting on a light particle moving away from the clock at the speed of light? Well, first thought is it, it, it might look frozen. In other words, the light particles moving away from 
that left at 12 noon uh, are just reaching you because you're moving the same speed they are. And it's always going to look like it's 12 noon because as you move away, the particles that started at 12 noon continue to reach you. Uh, is that what happens? And he's thinking this, well, that's, that doesn't work. So you got to keep thinking. If you think long enough, you come up with special relativity, which is exactly what Einstein did. And so what Einstein, everybody assumed there was something called the luminous ether. And <clears throat> there's this thing called the ether. So light is a wave and waves propagate through something. Um, sound waves move through the air. Ocean waves move through the water of the ocean. What does light move through? So they hypothesized, can't say that word, uh, they hypothecated that there was uh, something called the ether, that the earth moving through it, did, it didn't slow the earth down. So it had no interaction with matter other than it allowed light to propagate through it. Now, the key thing that did was it established absolute space and time. In other words, if you said, how is the Earth moving? Well, it's moving around the sun. Uh, the sun is uh, on an arm of the galaxy. Uh, the galaxy is part of a cluster of galaxies. They're all moving outward uh, from the Big Bang, which is not a locatable point. It's kind of weird. So... Okay, the Earth's moving around the sun, but what's the sum total of all the motion? Well, that is in motion through what? Through absolute space. Uh, and But what if there is no absolute space? Well, then it becomes a meaningless question. And that's what Einstein, Einstein's special relativity says, how would everything work if there was no absolute space? There's no absolute space. There's nothing you can talk about a relationship to. How fast are we moving? Um, it's a meaningless question. Well, wh wh how do we think about this? That's what special relativity does. So Einstein was able to throw out everything else everybody had been thinking about and raise a question that nobody had been thinking about. One of the great physicists of his day uh, Lorentz, and one way to put special relativity is it's an updating of Lorentz transformations. So Lorentz had worked with this problem. The problem was that the speed of light is non-additional. In other words, if a light source is coming toward you, light goes 186,000 miles per second. It's moving away from you, light goes 186,000 miles per second. It's not affected by your relative motion to your relative motion relative to the light source. Well, Lorentz had worked on how to fix that, and it didn't quite work, but Einstein started with that, the mathematical part of special relativity. And Lorentz became a big supporter of Einstein's special relativity, except he said, he's, Einstein's wrong on there is no absolute space. There is absolute space. Well, you know, the leading, a lot of the leading physicists of the day were not able to accept this, not able to accept this radical new thought. And 
Einstein never got a PhD. He wasn't going to get a PhD with this kind of thinking. So um, there's a lot of stuff I want to go on with. We'll uh, maybe pick these some of these ideas up next week. But going back to Peter Thiel talking about the world today, and you know, I've been thinking of this this great innovation we're living through. Uh, we look at people. Uh, a lot of people like Peter Diamandis talk about accelerating change. The rate of change is going faster and faster. Is that really true? Um, I go out and teach, and I've been in the same building for, I'll use some round numbers here, <laughs> almost 50 years, uh, you know, the same classrooms. And I, I say to my students, what am I doing different than I was 50 years ago? And the answer is 50 years ago, I went to my office and I got my slide projector. And the night before, I had my 35 millimeter slides, which I had taken from books because I teach history of architecture. So we look at important historical buildings. I teach technology. So we look at slides of, uh, of uh, what I'm talking about, whether it's a telegraph or uh, laser fiber optic cables or whatever. And those slides, I arrange them in the sequence of my lectures. Often I use two projectors so we can compare. And uh, I put the trays on the projectors. I have two remote controls with the long wires. And I go through my lecture. Well, today <laughs> I, I plug a video projector into my laptop and I boot up my prepared PowerPoint, which is better than the slides because the images are greater, the projector is brighter, I can put text, uh, you know, the titles of uh, names of the buildings and their dates under the images. That's it. That's the big change in 50 years. Uh, other than that, I still get there on the L train, which they're going to shut down <laughs> to fix from the flooding from Sandy. So, but I've got a, you know, the equivalent of a Cray-1 supercomputer in my belt pouch in my iPhone. So that's about it, you know. Is, is, so what, is change accelerating or not? There's a whole school of thought, Peter Thiel's part of it, that say, no, uh, innovation is slowing down. We can talk about that in a future show. But then why? Um, and he says, you know, there are two, two things going on in the world. There's technology, by which he means technological advancement, technological development, and globalization. And they're two totally different things, and he says they're often confused. Globalization is what they do, they did in uh, Japan and they do in China. And that is they adopt existing technology that they get from the West and more specifically from America. So they get caught up. That's globalization. Technology is ongoing technological development. And Peter Thiel says, you know, we divide the world into the uh, developing world and the developed world. And if we call ourselves a developed world, that is a dangerous psychological effect. Makes us think we're no longer developing. We've done everything. We don't, we've got We've got smartphones, we've got Facebook, we've got Twitter, we've got YouTube. We're there. Uh, 
Those things didn't exist 15 years ago. What's going to exist, you know, are we 15 years from now, we're just going to have better videos on YouTube and Twitter will go to 280 characters? That'll be it? Or are we going to have stuff that we couldn't even imagine just the way we couldn't have imagined those things, uh, uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and smartphones 15 years ago? And are we going to permit innovators to innovate these things? And one of the thoughts is, you know, the world is divided between bits and atoms. The world of atoms, the world of things, is so regulated, you can't do anything new. The world of atoms, I'm sorry, the world of bits, slipped in under the radar, and before they could regulate it and stop it, we got computers and home computers and tablets and uh, computer phones and the availability of, you know, books. And if I want to know what Peter Thiel's up to, there's a dozen of his lectures, hour-long lectures. It's not sound bites. This is an interesting guy. Or Stephen Wolfram, another one of the people I follow. And I can see their lectures. And I can, you know, <laughs> do it while I'm having lunch in the diner on my phone. Plug in the earphones, earplugs, and there I am. Are we going to permit those kinds of developments in the future? Or are we going to stop them? And... They almost did. I mean, I, I followed this whole computer thing. There was a point where there were so many different operating systems. You know, there was DOS and Apple, uh, Apple II, Apple, and <clears throat> Tandy and uh, others. And if you wanted to get a document from one to the other, you had to print it out on paper and type it into the other computer. They could not talk to each other. And there were people proposing that the government should make everybody use DOS. And then, you know, just the way everybody, you can plug any appliance into any wall socket. It'll work. It's regulated. They all got to work together. And they wanted all computers to be DOS, and then they could all work together. Well, that would have been fun. DOS is not gooey, you know. It's not, there's no clicking. There's no mouse in DOS. So uh, it would have been pretty horrible. A lot of us, like me, would not have been able to use computers. I took a course in Windows. I'm sorry, in DOS. And uh, I, could, I could have enough trouble with Windows. But I couldn't do that DOS stuff. I'm a Mac person. So <clears throat> the, you know, are we going to allow this innovation? And are we going to prepare people for innovation? Um, yeah, what does that mean? How do we do that? So let's look a little bit more at this article, and then I'll talk a bit more about the education that makes sure we don't have um, we don't have innovative people in the future. Uh, so. Adam Grant goes on, what holds them back is that they don't learn to be original. They strive to earn the approval of their parents and the admiration of their teachers. But as they perform in Carnegie Hall and become chess champions, something unexpected happens. 
practice makes perfect, but it doesn't make new. So another book I'll talk about next week is Angela Duckworth's Grit. And grit is about the people who stick to it, and they become excellent. But do they create anything new? The gifted learn to play magnificent Mozart melodies, but rarely compose their own original scores. They focus their energy on consuming existing scientific knowledge, not producing new insights. They conform to codified rules rather than inventing their own. Research suggests that the most creative children are the least likely to become the teacher's pet. And in response, many learn to keep their original ideas to themselves. So, um, you know, do, do we, have we created in our schools, in our society, a place where there are people that have original ideas They just learned to keep quiet about it. Uh, In the 1950s, there was this horrible um, surgery called a lobotomy. If somebody, you know, had very disturbing um, mental illness, they would um, stick a, pardon me, butter knife up under the eye and smash part of the brain, and the disturbing behavior would go away. And so would any personality. And someone who was critical of that quoted a uh, demonstration which someone had a lobotomy uh, was talking in front of an audience, and they said, so what's different? Do you still have those strange visions? He said, yeah, I still have the strange visions, but I've learned to keep quiet about them. (laughs) So uh, come back next week. We'll hear more about this. It's John LaBelle, Visionaries, here every Monday. And what time depends upon what part of the world you're in. Catch our back shows on the archives.